Welcome to the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. In this series, we'll bring you 12 of the best talks from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. This episode is called Island, Organised Crime, Illicit Enterprise and or Violent Extremism. Welcome, uh, welcome to this panel on uh, organised crime and or political violence in uh, the island of Ireland. So there's been kind of significant political and media interest in organised crime and illicit enterprise in Ireland. Uh, politicians and the media have long kind of framed organised crime groups as a threat to the security of the state. Um, these, there are some of these issues have been kind of securitized in Ireland, but this has not been met with a corresponding amount of academic research into these areas. And I think this is partly because there's a lack of state funding in Ireland, but it's also because criminology as a discipline is relatively new here. So we don't really have a tradition of organised crime research. Um, and I use the term organised crime to denote a broad field of study rather than specifically just organised crime groups. So, look, I welcome this panel. I think it indicates that the literature base is is growing. Um, and I think the some of the papers here will provide a foundation for this future research. So look, thanks to Fila and John for, for inviting us to put this panel uh, panel together. Now, I'll start this panel with a paper that's due to be published uh, shortly, which focuses on two elements of, um, of how organised crime in Ireland is structured and how that may be changing. It's quite a theoretical paper. I'll then that will be followed by my colleague Orla Lynch at University College Cork also, who will provide further foundation by discussing changes to counter-terrorism policy in Ireland with a kind of a state-of-the-art paper. paper. Uh, this will be followed by my colleague, Dr. Lindsay Black from Maynooth University. Um, I argued in a paper a few years back that organised crime research suffers from too much presentism and um, that we need historical context. And Lindsay is gonna provide a little bit of that in uh, an Irish context. The concluding paper is by Dr. Alexander Chance of the Azure Forum on Security, who will present research on uh, drug trafficking and um, contemporary research on drug trafficking. So, look, I will introduce each speaker as they as they speak. We'll take questions at the end. What I'm going to talk about today is um, the family gang structure and international mobility. Okay, so um, two colleagues of ours, uh, Ian Marder and Claire Hamilton, uh, also at the University of Maynooth, they've edited a special issue of the Journal of Contemporary Criminal Justice on Criminology in Ireland. And they asked me to write a piece on what makes organised crime in Ireland distinctive. I thought this was a, a very interesting brief and it allowed me to tackle a few areas that I've been kind of half thinking about. Um, and I, I kind of thought of four features which were commonly identified in the academic literature in Ireland and an additional one which came up in a series of meetings that I'd held with practitioners so in, on international mobility. And that's what I'm going to discuss uh, today. So the Irish organised crime milieu can be said to have five distinctive features. Okay, I'm not going to discuss all of these. Um, today, I'm going to talk about number two and five. So the idea that many organised crime groups and illicit enterprises are characterised as family gangs and that many organised crime groups and illicit enterprises are internationally mobile. Now, the two peer reviewers and the editors took issue with the distinctiveness of these five features. And I think look, they were quite right. Um, my first draft lacked clarity and the clar lack of clarity kind of boiled down to how the word distinctive is used. So I took the Oxford English Dictionary definition of distinctive as possessing a distinguishing mark or quality as opposed to unique, which means there is only one. 
Now, I edited an example out of the paper um, to, to kind of explain what I mean by distinctive. So I have a distinctive red beard, but it's far from unique in Ireland, but you can spot me in a crowd, which means it's a distinguishing uh, feature. Okay. So my argument in the paper is that none of these features are unique to Ireland, but together they do make the Irish organised crime milieu distinctive. Now, I also argue in the paper that many of these features are changing or may have already changed and that there's insufficient research into any of these dynamics. I think it's possible that further research could uncover that the family gang is actually much less common than is often believed or that few illicit entrepreneurs ever leave the state. Now, my concluding argument is that much further research is needed to clarify the structure of organised crime in Ireland and the changes that are occurring. Now, this argument is certainly not unique. I think it's the common kind of ending to most uh, panels at this uh, conference. So I'll focus now on the family gang structure. Um, I think this is possibly the most interesting element of that paper for, for this audience. So there are various types of organised crime structures in Ireland, but the family gang structure is the one that is most often identified in academic media and policy documents. So I did a, a very kind of semi-systematic review where I tried to identify all um, academic papers published on organised crime in Ireland, and I found 14 research papers which mentioned family gangs. I then searched all um, Irish newspapers just over a nine-month period, and about 20% of the relevant articles mentioned a family rather than an individual as involved in a particular crime or mentioned a particular family, often prefixed by a surname or some vague mention. There's one group that is simply called the family you know they've 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 made a few kind of um television uh, uh, television shows about kind of family gangs as well in Ireland myself Neve Horrigan Andrew Silk and John Morrison have called this a distinctive feature of organized crime in Ireland we wrote that in a uh, paper we published in 2018 in trends in organized crime uh, myself and Neve Horrigan have noted how this contributes to gangland feuding which is another issue that I discuss in the paper but don't really have time to discuss today now, Neve Horrigan, in what I think is probably Ireland's first theory of organised crime, has suggested that the family gang structure is an outcome of the trauma of colonialism, that during the colonial period, families became important sources of challenging British power, and that individuals began to look to the family for self-respect and sought to booster, bolster family honour through, through developing reputations for violence. Um, and she's argued that this... this um, the colonial period is, is the reason why family gangs are so common in Ireland. Now, I query this this colonialism theory, okay? And I've agreed with Eve in the past. We've written about this together. But I query it for three main reasons. First of all, the literature is yet to clarify if the family gang is the predominant structure in Irish gangland uh, or simply the structure which has received the most attention. So I've argued that the family name can become a familiar symbol used by journalists to sell newspapers and possibly academics because, you know, it's kind of easy. But this can result in family names being attributed to non-family based networks or activities. Second, the exact structure of the family gang is seldom clarified and there's likely greater diversity within this structural type than is afforded in the literature. So Sean Redman, for example, um, found this very hierarchical family gang, whereas his colleague Johnny Connolly looked at a different network and found what might be termed kind of a wheel network. So saying family gangs isn't always all that helpful. It doesn't tell us much about the structure other than some actors are related. 
Now, third, the, the family gang structure may be distinctive of Ireland, but it's far from unique to the country. Family firms have been found in Italy, in Israel, in Colombia, in Germany and in the UK. So Dick Hobbs talked about the family firm in London. Rob McLean's talked about the family gang in Scotland. Um, Hornsby's talked about the family gang in northern England. And if family gangs are common in the colonizer, the UK, this throws doubt into whether the experience of colonialism can be the causal factor for this type of structure. Now, I argue that the structure of Irish organised crime may, and I do mean may, be grounded in the historical context of colonialism. But colonialism is unlikely the cause. Rather, I think colonialism may have contributed slightly to the precise form the phenomena takes, but as a subcultural response to social and economic exclusion. Now, in the paper, I conclude that section by pro proposing that a comparative analysis of the impact of colonialism on organised crime structures would be really interesting, as would a comparative analysis of the involvement of families in organised crime. Now, the second element of the paper that I was discussed today is international mobility. Now, this is an important area which has been overlooked in Ireland, but it's been studied in other countries. Um, it's a big policy and operational issue, but it's got minimal academic research. So I identified three forms of mobility, those commuting for one-off jobs, those migrating for longer periods, often to coordinate illicit trade from transshipment countries and mobile organised crime groups. So I've got kind of four examples here. Kind of maybe the most famous is about 10 years ago, Europol coordinated Operation Shovel, which targeted a well-known Irish family clan thought to be involved in kidnapping, money laundering, smuggling various commodities. They were based at the time between the Netherlands, Ireland, UK and Spain. Now some of them are living in United Arab Emirates. The second is the Irish citizen who was living in the UK, who opened car dealerships in Ireland and the UK, which were used to money launder money generated by drug traffickers based in Spain, and the drugs were sent to the uh, to Ireland. The third is the Irish citizen found in a safe house in the UK. He fled Ireland to evade investigation into intimidation and had previously been charged with machinery theft in Belgium and illegally transporting waste from Ireland to Scotland. The fourth is um, a very mobile organised crime group which stole 58 rhino horns from across Europe and smuggled them uh, to Asia and were involved in various other things uh, throughout Europe. Now, there's no research in this area in Ireland. So I use Felia Allen's um, research on why Camoria mafias migrate. And she argued that it's due to these kind of push-pull factors. I thought this could be useful for Ireland. So the push factors for Felia are quite rational. When the level of risk increases beyond an acceptable level, they leave. They leave to avoid arrest and harm. They're less concerned with expanding their business. The pull factors, they're pulled by having friends or family in the new location and perceptions of lax law enforcement. Now, importantly, in Felia's sample, they didn't transplant. They adapted to new environments and they reduced or kind of stopped their extortion and, and violence. I think the pull factors are quite plausible in an Irish context. You know, it's often said by journalists that the Criminal Assets Bureau forced some out of the state, as has feuding. But some have also moved because they want to be part of transnational networks. So these purely entrepreneurial moves, which is where we differ from Felia's sample. The pool networks, we can look at the case of Spain. It's a transshipment point for cocaine. It has a large tourist industry, which provides investments and money laundering opportunities. But I also think it's more personal. You can get a semi-decent pint of Guinness in Spain. Everyone's got friends over there. People know the place. You get to sit on a nice beach and drink cocktails. It's raining and cold in Cork right now. Um, I think there's a personal element to going to the UK as well. There are so many Irish criminals in the UK because everyone's got a cousin there. 
But migrating isn't always easy and it can be costly for established criminals. Also, many people just don't want to leave. They like being seen as the local hard man. But as more established criminals started to leave the state, going abroad may be seen as a rite of passage. Plus, Ireland has a strong history of having an internationally mobile, legitimate workforce. So people are almost expected to leave to work abroad for a bit. So there may be this cultural driver for leaving the state. Now, look, this is a plausible theory, but it needs researching. So the final section of the paper argues that this is all changing. And I draw here from the work of Dick Hobbs. Essentially, Hobbs looked at East London's family firms and said the family firm had adapted to changes in local, national and global political economy. That once they've been these very well-structured family firms, but now they were much more disorganised and the family was becoming more of a brand than, a, I suppose, an organising structure. So I conclude by drawing on this theory to argue that Ireland's labour environment points to a further loosening of organised crime structures for four main reasons. First of all, many Irish criminals are internationally mobile and thriving in global markets requires flexibility. Second, the increased use of information technology and the shift towards new psychoactive substances means that enterprises which once required a physical presence and a cohesive group can, can move online, which requires a network of a couple of people and it's kind of less risky. Fourth, Ireland has a flexible labour regime and low job security. And if the illicit mirrors the illicit, then Ireland's illicit economy will become more predatory and more flexible. Fourth, the lack of social and affordable housing in many Irish cities risks fragmenting communities and weakening social bonds. So if all this continues, we may see a much looser, much more individualistic organised crime milieu with the family, more of a brand than a structure, which may have already happened, to be honest. But it could also become more violent and uh, predatory. OK, thank you very much. Apologies for going over. So let me just quickly introduce Orla. So Dr Orla Lynch is a colleague of mine at University College Cork. Orla's current research focuses on victimisation, trauma and political violence in relation to the direct uh, victims of violence, but also the broader psychosocial impact of victimisation and the perpetrator of victim complex. Her recent books include Giving Voice to Diversity in Criminological Research, Reflections on Irish Criminology, Applying Psychology, the Case of Terrorism, Political Violence, The Desistance Journey and Criminology, Crime and Justice in Ireland. Um, I've worked with Orla for about six years now. We, we co-teach a module together. We've written three books together. I've never once seen her present. So uh, <laughs> we're no cracking pressure. on now. No pressure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for logging in. I know it's early. Um, so I suppose my work has started off very much looking at what you'd call traditional terrorism studies, talking about pathways, radicalization, extremism, trying to understand that process. And as I got through that research, one of the big things that came up um, in the research was this notion of grievance and um, narratives of victimhood aligned to that grievance. And, and that's where that's where the victim's piece comes in. So trying to understand um, motivation, trying to understand justification and um, trying to understand transgenerational transmission. How do these messages and narratives um, transmit across families, transmit across generations? And so so when I talk about victims and perpetrators, as you know, obviously, within criminology, they're often one of the same thing. And we see the same here in in um, in research on political violence. And so that's kind of where my work sits fundamentally. I take a psychological lens on the work 
um, and that kind of informs informs the research that I do. This piece I've written here is very much, uh, as, as James already said, a kind of state of play piece. So it's it's trying to understand what have we got in Ireland in terms of counterterrorism, in terms of countering violent extremism or preventing violent extremism, so CVE and PVE. And to answer that in the here and now, we've got to look backwards. Of course, we can't talk about political violence in Ireland. We can't talk about post 9-11 political violence without knowing the context. And it is quite unique here in terms of counterterrorism. Uh, if you were to do a literature search on CVE, PVE, counter-extremism, radicalization, et cetera, et cetera, nothing comes up. Um, in Ireland. Nothing comes up in terms of the research. Of course, it comes up and appears in the form of peace, in the form of post-conflict, in the form of transition. So we don't talk about the troubles. We don't talk about the North um, in the same way that we do about any other terrorism in Europe. So it's very much in the in the kind of context of conflict. Now, you know, the, the kind of crime nexus there, of course, is a massive part of this story. I'm going to focus not so much on that. I'm going to talk about the the, the kind of understanding we have um, of terrorism on the island in light of the troubles, but also in, in the current situation. Um, the legacy of the troubles is everywhere. It's in policing, it's in law, it's in our prisons. Our entire criminal justice policy revolves around it, but it's all unsaid. Um, and, and I suppose the big message from, from the piece of work that I'm drawing on here, which is the publication being led by Ian Marder and Claire in Maynooth, is that we have a two-tiered system. So depending on your ideological motive, we have a very much two-tiered system. You could also, that could be chronological, so it could be pre and post 9-11, but more realistically, the frame is the troubles. So it's not it's not necessary to do with 9-11. Um, Counterterrorism is most obvious as a policy in our prison system. And what do I mean by that? So if we talk a little bit about Europe, what have we got? Um, currently in Europe, a lot of countries have gone down the road of uh, creating bespoke prison regimes for individuals convicted of terrorism and terrorism related offences. So we look at Norway, we look at Denmark, we look at Belgium, the Netherlands, France, they all have um, isolation units within the prisons or they have returning units for women and children coming back from Syria. So what we'll very broadly call Islamist extremism is dealt with in isolation. Um, and that's become a very, very big issue. So if we look at what we have in Ireland, obviously we only have um, very limited numbers of individuals charged with terrorism related to Islamic extremism. Um, there is currently one individual in prison. There is one who actually was just uh, extradited. And um, there was about six there at one point, all related to activities outside of the state, related to financial crime and many uh, being extradited. So we don't have um, an extremist problem in that sense, and it hasn't come up that we've had to deal with it. Um, we currently have 23 people in a specialist unit in a prison in the mainstream, or sorry, in the high security prison in Port Leash. And those are all what we would say related to the troubles. So we do actually have our own isolation unit in Ireland. They have their own wing. Uh, they have a effectively a union leader. They communicate with the governor and they have a different regime so they don't have the normal prison education work regime that other prisoners have so it's a very very unique situation that's not well understood outside of ireland these individuals um are treated differently even all the way to the level of the department of justice so um it's a very very unique situation in that sense 
Um, what are the what are the big things to think about is how does that impact on on what we're doing now? So if we think about the, the picture of extremism in Ireland, if we think of the picture of extremism across Europe, the big the big things, of course, are the Islamic extremism and the far right. Separatism exists in pockets. Um, in France, separatism has recently emerged. Of course, we have it in Spain. We have it ongoing in Brussels. We have elements of it in the UK, um, but it doesn't appear um, as violence in most circumstances. In the terms of the far right, we do have examples of violence. Oftentimes they're not categorized as terrorism. They may appear as hate crime. They appear as um, crime with a racial element. So we don't see that simple classification system. One indicator, rough and all as it is, is to look at who's referred to the channel program in the UK. So the channel program is the um, the referral system in the UK for individuals suspected of extremism. Um, anybody can refer. And of course, there's a statutory requirement for referral as well. So doctors, nurses, teachers, lecturers have an obligation to report in the same way that they'd have child protection obligations. Um, and the people who get referred to the channel program, uh, the rough figures of last year were 5,000 people referred. Half of them were ideology unknown. If we come back to that one, 25% of them roughly were right wing, 25% of them roughly Islamist extremism generally defined. Um, so that will give you a very good idea. However, most importantly, 10% of that figure um, went on to be uh, attended to. So the rest of them were not seen to be extremist at all. Uh, but let's go back to the ideological piece, because in Ireland, while we have the influence of the troubles, we could also look at that from an ideological perspective. So. Um, the issue of non-aligned ideology or unclear ideology is increasingly becoming a big uh, a big issue for for counterterrorism, um, you know, for contagion. And the reason being is that if you look at if you look at, for example, the likes of QAnon, it's very much the um, the kind of horoscope approach to conspiracy, right? Choose the bits that you want. Elements of QAnon will overlap with the left and the right, um, and it's it's never it's never very clear could where you could situate that that situation. Also, you have a lot of side switching going on. So um, Daniel Kohler talks in, in his recent book um, about side switching individuals moving from the far right to Islamist extremism. Very strange when you think about it at a superficial level. But when you look at the meaning and the shared concepts, it, it becomes obvious. So I think that's a key point that ideology is incre increasingly recognized as highly, highly fluid and not it's not defining feature. If we use ideology as a frame in Ireland, we can think, of course, of the ideology related to the troubles as one defining element and then the Islamist extremism as the other defining element. And in counterterrorism, in terms of response to that, we have a very different approach. So if you think about the peace process, if you think about the aim very, very quickly to talk about the aim of the peace process, the aim of the peace process was governance, was community buy-in. It certainly wasn't de-radicalization. It wasn't about the ideas that people held. What the agreement was with the paramilitary parties in the peace process in Northern Ireland was stop the violence. We don't care what your ideas are. Just don't do violence right now. Get rid of the weapons. Stop doing the violence, and you don't even have to dis, um, you don't even have to dis, uh, disband the group. So, for example, the IRA was not a, was not uh, disbanding the group was not part of the deal. So the group weren't disbanded, and the ideology wasn't challenged. So the belief was that once they didn't do violence, they could have whatever deals they want. 
if you look at the approach to um, Islamist extremism across Europe, and for, for a moment, we will say in Ireland as well, the idea was that de-radicalization was necessary, that to challenge the ideas was necessary, and that it wasn't about the violence, it was about the ideas. And that's hugely, hugely problematic. You saw that emerging when there was um, the adoption of the laws around the glorification of terrorism, um, you know, the idea that that might be something that would be prosecuted here and uh, never obviously happened. So you do have two very, very different approaches. So the de the desistance and the, the removal of violence versus the de-radicalization in the current situation. If you think on the ground what's actually going on now, we do not have a uh, countering violent extremism, preventing violent extremism policy in Ireland. We do not have a de-radicalization program, and rightly so. In a recent interview with the former head of the probation service, head of the prison service of the Gardaí, they all recognize that this is a very small, very fringe problem, that to create those policies would um, would be, you know, using a hammer to deal with something. Um, and what they talked about was uh, a bespoke case-by-case -case basis. The one other thing to point to is that the role of probation is seen as highly important in this in this environment and probation in Ireland are highly involved with CEP in Europe, they're involved with RAN, looking at policy on how to manage extremist prisoners, but they currently do not manage um, troubles related prisoners in that way. So, you know, again, this two tiered system is emerging all of the time, but there's a very sensible, very grounded approach to it in Ireland, very unlike what's going on in Europe. And um, we absolutely don't model um, what we're doing on, for example, the likes of France, where they have local um, municipalities who have, you know, radicalization coordinators working with the federal government to deal with people released from prison or to deal with people who are thought to, to seem to be threats in that space. Um, in terms of our only extremist, we'll say, well, extremist prisoner, uh, Lisa Smith, um, we only have capacity in Port Leach Prison for male individuals imprisoned for terrorism offences. There is nowhere for a woman to go, despite her case being heard in the um, uh, in the Special Criminal Court. Um, so that's probably reflective of the times. There were plenty of women in the Troubles who were convicted of terrorism and terrorism-related offences, offences against the state. Um, so that's a complication that's arisen. There are a number of Irish citizens in camps in Syria, a number of Irish children in camps in Syria related to ISIS activity. So this is not a problem that's going to disappear, but it's very much a problem that's a case by case basis. And I think um, the barriers that we have put in place because we're using the frame of radicalization um, is something we're going to have to overcome. Thank you very much. Hey, Ola, thank you. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, We'll move straight on to Lindsay Black, her talk. So Dr. Lindsay Black is Assistant Professor of Criminology at uh, Maynooth University. Lindsay researches in the areas of gender and punishment, the death penalty, historical criminology and post-colonial criminology. Her books include Law and Gender in Modern Ireland, Women, Murder and Punishment in Ireland and uh, most recently Histories of Punishment and Social Control in Ireland. She's currently Principal Investigator on the IRC New Foundation Project Living Borders, Cattle Smuggling on the Irish border. Lindsay, over to you. Great, thanks very much. Um, so the research is funded by the Irish Research Council. Um, the work explores the lived experience of borders and the everyday criminality of people who live at national boundaries. Um, today I want to look specifically at cattle smuggling on the Ireland Northern Ireland border through the 20th century. And while I'm looking at the historical picture and have been for the past year and a half or so, the next step is to consider the contemporary issues of crime and security and punishment at the border. I suppose it's particularly relevant at the moment 
the year marking the centenary of the border, uh, while we're also navigating a post-Brexit uh, criminal justice landscape. So today I just want to present some quotes from oral history interviews, just a handful conducted so far to give some indication of the early themes that have come out of their preliminary research. So the creation of a border creates a liminal space um, for crime. It's a grey zone for the legal and the illegal. We saw this, for example, in the Northern Irish-Irish context during the Morris Tribunal, which looked at um, the actions of Gardaí and Donegal, which reminds us that criminality at the border is not just reserved for those who are policed. So the moment a border is created, um, there are, for example, different regulatory systems, there is an opportunity for crime. Import-export policies create different economic regimes on either side, and as we know in the Irish Northern Irish context, that created the conditions for large-scale smuggling after independence. So throughout the 20th century, various measures were put in place to prevent the illicit transport of goods, the installation of customs officers after independence, the closure of some roads whereby you had approved routes and unapproved routes. Um, but there is a very extensive network of rural roads, heavily in isolated areas and water crossings, which meant that stamping out smuggling was going to always be impossible. Cahill McCall has written that this region has the most extensive cross-border road network in Europe, officially 208 cross-border roads on the island, nearly twice as many as those crossing the EU's entire eastern external frontier. So I've so far interviewed older men living in rural areas near the border in either Northern Ireland or Ireland. And these are men who can speak to the practices of paddle smuggling from the 1950s um, up until the 1990s. The men were all, they were all farmers or they worked somehow in agriculture, either in cattle dealing or machinery. Um, and they were aged in their 60s to their 80s. I want to give a flavour of some of the themes that are coming out from just a handful of these research interviews so far. The participant one was a farmer um, and a lorry driver who lived in Northern Ireland. Um, he had a cattle lorry, he did work for local farmers, and he said that the nature of the border in his particular area was that it was both unavoidable, but also somewhat ambiguous in its precise location, for example. And he said, we would have crossed the border every day. But despite this regularity, there was also the fact that there were very few clear dividing lines, especially on the smaller rural roads that he would have traversed. So he said, it happened once I didn't know. A man asked me to lift a load of young calves in Tipperary. He told me he would meet me somewhere. There was no mobile phones. He said, you follow me. And I was almost in this particular village in the north across two or three wee unapproved roads. And I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know I was smuggling then, but then I had to smuggle my lorry back. But then he tells another story about the construction of his flatbed truck, which was built and fitted illegally in Ireland and transported into Northern Ireland. And he said, that time I knew it, it was to save money. And the simplicity of the answer to him, um, it was just to save money. The container would have cost him uh, the same again in Northern Ireland. And crucially, all the participants that I've spoken to are respectable members of their local communities. They are active in their church. They are pillars of very small, very tightly knit rural communities. So the maintenance of a self-identity, which isn't at odds with respectability, was clear whenever you were speaking to these men. There is no stain of criminality that attaches to them, even though they spent many years engaging in kind of organized um, criminal activity. To, in, to a certain extent. 
Participant number one continued, um, he talked about the troubles or perceived any potential physical danger. And he said, I suppose in later years when the troubles started, it wasn't too pleasant. Even anywhere going about Belfast late at night with a lorry load of cattle. He said there seemed to be no problems in the South. They just wanted to know about the troubles. He said there's always boys wanting to know where you come from and then saying we know what kind of colour you are. But he also remembers the onset of the troubles and the changes this brought both to his legitimate business, but also um, the side activities that he was engaged in. And he said, I remember the first day the army came into Derry. It was a real nightmare. And the impact of troubles on business was clear. He said, you could have been held up at the border for hours. And in a couple of years time, I sold the lorry. I gave it up. Participant number two, I was a farmer who also lived uh, in Northern Ireland. And what he perhaps most strongly remembers was the deep inconvenience and the paperwork. He said it was awkward for general trading. There was paperwork and he, alluding to Brexit, said, no doubt before long, we'll be swamped with paperwork again. And he said it was very hard to deal with customs men because they were and could be highly awkward. He told a story about being stopped and quizzed over a piece of machinery in the 1980s. And he was told by a customs officer that it was not present and correct because of a missing form that should have been in the Irish language. And he said, I was pulled in at Irish customs. The man looked at the two passes. He said, they'll be sent to Dublin because they're not done in Irish. And I said, well, fine, but let me pass today. Fair enough, he did do that. But in hindsight, it was the greatest thing ever. When the things came back in Irish, them boys couldn't read them. I know they'd been taught Irish in school like they'd just forgotten it. Participant two also spoke about the onset of the troubles and the security forces. And he'd had some years experience as a member of the Ulster Defence Regiment, which was an arm of the security forces in Northern Ireland, specifically after the onset of the troubles. He said, I was a member of the security forces for seven years and you would always turn a blind eye because as long as the smugglers weren't bringing guns or shooting at us, we'd let them tear away. The attitude was, he said, leave us alone and we'll leave you alone. And he said there were people that you knew, even my very first week on the border, there was a colleague shot at the border. And he speaks about working specifically with the British Army. He said up in those border areas, they would have sent me out because the army never knew where they were. They didn't know where the border was. I mean, you bring a boy from Manchester or Birmingham and he hadn't a clue. They would have had maps with them too. Some of the smarter ones would have had some idea. But then there was ones that didn't care tuppence and you'd see an international incident then. Participant number three lived in Ireland and dealt uh, with the broader um, business of agriculture relating to machinery. Um, everyone was at it. He said they worked the system, surely. They worked the border district themselves. And he speaks about the criminality and the activities of those who were policing the border as well, uh, specifically customs officers. And he said there were cattle that were smuggled from Southern Ireland into Derry and sold in the Brandywell, which was the market there. And the Northern custom man would come up to his father and said, give me half the price of the cattle or I'm going to seize them. And he also spoke about the troubles. Each of them had a very firm idea of how the activity of smuggling at the border changed after the onset of the troubles in the late 60s, but then particularly into the 1970s. Participant number three said, before the troubles, it was more laid back. You could have afforded to drive a piece of machinery across the fields, but once the trouble came in, um, the concern is that you're going to be shot for doing before what there was very little risk to. 
And when asked if religion played any role in the smuggling, he said a bit, a bit. And he alluded to the fact that if you were stopped in particular um, by the Irish customs officers, that if you were not Catholic, there was a very good chance that you were going to get it worse. Um, and so far, the majority of the participants I've spoken to have been Protestants. Um, and one uh, participant has been Catholic and naturally tells a slightly different story or the reverse story of the unfortunate fact of being Catholic when stopped by Protestant security services. So, so far, my research has considered the land border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. But the border is obviously, again, a contentious issue between Ireland and Northern Ireland. There are risks of future smuggling, um, not on a land border perhaps, but on a sea border, depending on how things shake out over the coming while. These histories so far have taken the basis of the project and trying to understand the historical context. But the next step, and in the wake of Brexit and debates over the Northern Irish Protocol and the emergence of what's been referred to as the sea border, this is where I'd like to take the research next. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. Hi, Lindsay. Thank you. That was really interesting. Um, what I thought was interesting, the kind of looking at Orla's work where she said ideology is fluid, and what you're looking at there is kind of perceptions of legitimacy are, are also kind of fluid. Um, so next up is Dr. Alexander Chance. He's a specialist in transnational organised crime and corruption, in particularly in peace building context. He's a senior fellow at the Azure Forum and an associate, associate at Transparency International Island. He has a PhD from Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Alexander, uh, over to you. Thank you, James. I hope you can hear me. And uh, thank you for yours. And thank you, Orla and Lindsay, for your really interesting presentations. Uh, I'm afraid, as you can probably hear, that uh, you're back now to another Englishman talking about Ireland and another baldy, beardy one at that. So uh, my apologies in advance to all the Irish watching or listening in. Today is to provide just a few insights into key features of contemporary organised crime on the island of Ireland and to make a few considered judgments about how it might evolve in the years to come. I haven't got a huge amount of time and we want to leave uh, 10 minutes or so for questions at the end. So I'm going to focus my comments on drug trafficking and then perhaps we can touch on other forms of organised crime in Ireland in the Q&A afterwards if people are interested. Uh, in terms of structure, I'll first paint the picture in very broad terms of current patterns of drug trafficking into uh, and drug supply within the islands of Ireland before then briefly making three assessments about how it might develop in the near to medium term future. And most of what I'm going to talk about uh, is based on a research project that I completed earlier this year on behalf of the Azure Forum, uh, which was originally commissioned by the British Embassy in Dublin, looking at serious organised crime across and between the UK and Ireland. And I'll post a link to the reports in the chat box after uh, I've finished so you can access it. Uh, so for this project, we looked at over 300 different pieces of literature from a really wide variety of sources uh, and then corroborated the initial findings from that very extensive literature review with interviews with senior detectives from 10 different specialist units within Angada Shikana and the police service of Northern Ireland. Uh, and obviously, although we wanted to make the research as wide ranging as possible, we couldn't look at every form of organised crime. So we decided to focus on drug trafficking modern slavery and human trafficking, 
and economic crime, as well as a number of so the so-called criminal enablers. In other words, uh, those activities that facilitate several different forms of organised crime. And in particular, we looked at criminal use of technology, the exploitation of, of borders, including the common travel area, uh, professional and public sector corruption and criminal use of firearms, which, of course, in Ireland, as in many countries, is most closely linked to the drugs trade. So in terms of the current situation as regards drug trafficking into and within Ireland, a key headline from our research was that the island of Ireland is treated by many organised crime groups as a single market for drug trafficking. And what this means in practical terms is that these groups ignore the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic for the purposes of transporting and selling illicit drugs. But at the same time, those same groups know that the different legal and policing jurisdictions uh, are going to work to their advantage. So uh, although cross-border law enforcement may be very good and seemingly uh, uh, that's been maintained despite uh, a somewhat challenging political context in recent years, it's still at root two separate policing systems, uh, two separate legal jurisdictions. And as an aside, uh, we also found that this all-island single market exists for human trafficking, both for the purposes of sexual exploitation and labour exploitation, with victims being uh, marketed simultaneously across the island, but also regularly being moved uh, across the border in order to evade the attention of the authorities. Uh, looking at how drugs are trafficked into Ireland, uh, we found that the, the east-west link between the island of Ireland and Great Britain remains really important for wholesale drug trafficking, in particular to Northern Ireland. However, having said that, a key finding was that the role of organised crime groups in Great Britain in supplying uh, the Irish drugs markets has diminished quite considerably over the past decade or so, as Irish drug traffickers have established their own uh, quite resilient importation and supply chains to Ireland. So whereas previously the Irish drug markets were supplied primarily from groups in large British cities, cities uh, like London, Liverpool, etc. Now there are Irish-run supply chains direct from the main European drug distribution hubs, notably in Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, uh, as well as more lucrative but limited uh, connections further upstream, including in South America. And what that means in practical terms is that although most drug importations to Ireland might physically pass through Britain, uh, Britain increasingly acts as a, a waypoint, for want, of, for want of a better term, rather than a source of supply. Uh, and, and in fact, the quantities that pass through Britain en route to Ireland may actually decrease uh, in correlation with any reduction in the use of the UK land bridge for legitimate trade as new direct ferry routes to Ireland um, open up from France and Spain. Um, the third and final key finding in relation to current drug trafficking that I want to touch upon is the vital role of uh, corrupted workers at ports and airports. Of course, um, these sort of individuals are kind of vital to sort of cogs in the wheel, if you like, of, of any form of smuggling around the world. But in the context of an island, they, I'd argue they assume particular, particular importance and represent a really valuable assets uh, for, for drug trafficking groups. In particular, uh, corrupted port workers are absolutely key to identifying containers for um, drug rip-offs, uh, notably uh, of cocaine originating from South America, but also of other, uh, of other narcotics. Uh, in fact, we assess that rip-offs from containers are likely to become a more common trafficking method into Ireland if Irish crime groups continue to expand 
their contacts further upstream along uh, drug supply chains and, and as trade flows adjust uh, following Brexit, which I'll explore further in a second. And similarly, corrupted workers in the logistics and haulage industries, in particular, uh, complicit truck drivers, play an absolutely essential role in the importation of drugs and a whole range of other illicit commodities onto the island of Ireland, including firearms. And this crucial role of heavy goods vehicles in smuggling drugs to Ireland, both north and south, is pretty sure to continue despite changes in the use of, of, of the land bridge between, or so, sorry, through Great Britain. Uh, as more direct routes open up between islands and continental Europe. Um, so, so, so that's just in terms of so much for the, the situation as it stands. Uh, what about our assessment of the future of drug trafficking and drug supply into Ireland? So in this, I want to briefly make three points, which um, I hope uh, might spur a bit of discussion afterwards. The first judgment uh, is that given the expanding and diversifying market for cocaine in Ireland, it's possible that non-Irish organised crime groups will look to gain a larger share or even dominance of supply and retail to this very lucrative uh, market on the island, so north and south. Uh, if we look at what's happened within the British cocaine market next door, uh, which has been in, in many places largely taken over by Albanian organised crime groups, um, we can see that one possible model for such an attempt is to undercut existing uh, Irish suppliers with cheaper, high, but still high purity products. Um, uh, even though if, if, if this was to happen, they might continue using lower level Irish criminals for distribution and sales at a local or retail level. Um, uh, and I should stress that this scenario I'm painting is, is unlikely or highly unlikely, whilst uh, the major Irish organised crime groups control the Irish drugs market. But of course, the vacuum created by law enforcement dismantling or even significant disruption to these groups uh, might provide a viable opportunity for this type of, of an aggressive move uh, onto the island. Uh, secondly, in relation to Brexit, our research assessed that it's highly likely that groups trafficking drugs into Ireland will take advantage uh, of any shift in legitimate trade flows uh, into or via Ireland, irrespective of what might happen with the protocol. I mean, it's fair to say that just as with legitimate trade, um, the UK's exit from the EU led initially at least to, to a fair degree of uncertainty within criminal markets that rely on legitimate trade flows onto the island um, from or through Great Britain. And, and of course, the, the trade and cooperation agreement ensured a, a degree of continuity in trading patterns. But there are still changes that are taking place. And some of these are, are yet to be fully realised, for example, around the impact of free ports in the UK. And one example of these changes that we can, that we can already point to are the additional sort of roll-on, roll-off ferry routes directly between Ireland and Europe. And it's fairly clear that organised crime are already looking to sort of test and take advantage of these new opportunities. So third and finally, and staying on the theme of post-Brexit changes to trade flows, uh, we identified a, a particular risk to port cities in Ireland if there are significant changes in legitimate containerized maritime trade flows to the UK. Uh, because containers are such a vital method for drug trafficking, international drug trafficking, and because the retrieval of, of illicit commodities uh, from containers tends to spawn its own uh, sort of mini criminal economy in and around ports, any changes uh, are likely to have a significant knock-on impact on drug flows to and between the UK and Ireland. 
So in particular, if Dutch and Belgian ports start to reduce in their relative importance as distribution hubs feeding the, the very sizable UK uh, cocaine and heroin markets, there is a risk that trafficking groups will look to offload their consignments directly into UK ports or uh, of more relevance to, for our purposes today, indirectly into Irish ports for onwards transportation uh, to Britain. Uh, and I should emphasise that it's, it's hard to assess the likelihood of this type of shift taking place. But I think it's really important to flag the serious potential impact that this would have in terms of drug supply, corruption uh, and violent criminal competition, in, especially in, in port cities in Ireland. We only have to look, to look at what's happened and what continues to happen in some European port cities such as Rotterdam uh, to see the impact, even on a much smaller scale, if these shifts were, take, were to take place. And I haven't even got on to how those types of harms might be exacerbated uh, by any increased presence of, of Balkan or South American or Turkish traffickers, for example, um, to supervise the extraction and the handover of, of larger drug maritime drug consignments. So I'll, I'll bring it into land there. I think we're, we've, we've only got sort of 10 minutes or so left. Um, we've looked at a few uh, key features of drug trafficking and drug supply into and within the islands of Ireland. Uh, and I've also made a handful of judgments about how we might see drug trafficking developing in, in the near to medium term uh, future, which, which I hope might stimulate some questions. Um, there's loads I haven't had time to mention, not least around the market for different types of drugs uh, across the island of Ireland, human trafficking, firearms trafficking, uh, economic crime, cyber enabled frauds, uh, corruption, etc. But perhaps we can discuss some of these topics in the Q&A uh, afterwards. Thanks, thanks so much for listening. OK, Alexander, thank you. I thought it was really interesting. I thought that the piece about kind of displacement, if if kind of Dutch ports start cracking down and they could start looking to Ireland, I thought that that was that was really interesting. It's kind of a bit horizon scanning, trying to get ahead of the curve on this and thinking, look, it may not happen, but it could. Um, and I I think it's it's kind of really sensible to start focusing in on this. Um, we 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 had a similar thing with what they were calling the Russians, weren't they? It was just a couple of years back that they came into a few Irish cities and started trying to um, take control of the wholesale heroin market and, and kind of a similar thing came in, started kind of employing uh, locals to to retail. Didn't last too long, um, but bits and pieces. I know Vice did an article on this um, uh, maybe last year. So I think that idea of uh, once the market opens up, someone else could kind of swoop in and um i i think that's that's interesting that's really interesting stuff right i'm going to stop my kind of rambling my rambling thoughts um right uh, we have a couple of questions that have, have started to come in so look i suppose we we can take these um and then if anyone else wants to start asking questions uh, please do so frank um don don domini sorry if i'm not pronouncing your name correctly um, does Northern Irish organised crime follow the same structure as, as described, so kind of the family gang structure, and how is loyalist organised crime linked with Scottish organised crime? Do you know, that's, uh, I, I'll, I'll kind of start with this and then I can open it up. Um, look, it's not an area I know a great deal about. I know kind of Rob McLean has written a little bit about the links between, between Ireland and Scotland, and I suppose the links being that you know, some people in the north have have family over in Scotland. Um, that you know, there, there's kind of you know cultural similarities. There's a lot of links. So kind of you know, very similar to 
what we were discussing, we were discussing the, the island of Ireland and kind of Great Britain. The you know, we, we work with people when we know people in the country. So I suppose look, there may be links there. Rob McLean's talked about this, but it's it's not really my area. I'm not sure about how uh, loyalist organized crime groups might be structured. Does anyone else want to comment on this or just to comment maybe historically that a lot of the people that I have spoken to would have mentioned the markets in Derry and Donegal and the fact that smuggled cattle would have been taken to Scotland to market there. So they obviously have those kind of business networks back and forth. And um, that would have been, I suppose, like through the 20th century as opposed to what's going on now. Oh, that's that's interesting. Um, anyone else on Northern Ireland? Loyalists? I, I need only to say that um, the link between Britain and I include Scotland in that, um, and Northern Ireland uh, is of more importance in terms of contemporary drugs flows because of some of those relationships that you talk about, James. One, one aspect of our research which was I thought was interesting is that uh, certainly amongst um, some law enforcement officers and PSNI, etc., um, there was a a sense that perhaps some of the paramilitary groups have a degree of complacency in relation to their dominance of uh, criminal markets within their spheres of influence uh, and that those could be fairly easily disrupted by an aggressive um, entry from from elsewhere. Um, how likely that is to happen uh, remains to be seen. We'll move on because I think we're going to close in a minute. How will Irish unification affect all island organised crime? Potentially less headache for organised crime than all the legitimate aspects like integrating policing and integrating governments. Organised crime might get it a lot easier. Does anyone else have any questions, any thoughts? I think if I could kind of put the questions back on you guys, I I never get to speak on panels like this, so I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm always on a gender panel or an historical panel. Um, and on that note, one of the things I find interesting, James, was whenever you were talking about um, Mee Perkins' thesis of uh, colonialism and your kind of your take on this, that actually it's that's clearly a contextual factor, but not a cause. Um, which I kind of find with a lot of my research on gender and punishment as well, where the post-colonialism argument is a contextual factor, but is it a cause? It's hard to know because I look at the same things happening with gender and punishment in countries like Spain, for example, or Italy or Peru, where there's the same level of kind of Catholic involvement in justice. So if you could kind of, if you want to speak a bit more to that and kind of your your critique or your take on the idea of colonialism and how it has impacted the structure of organized crime. Well, it, I, I think that's the point. I'm, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, and I think one one way to look at this would be if if we could look at some kind of comparative um, study of the impact of, of colonialism on, on organized crime. And there have been a few studies um, that, that have looked at colonialism and organized crime in in Africa um in in America as well so there, there is a, a a larger body that that has looked at this um so there's 
potential for comparative historical analysis on this. I suppose I just started looking and myself and Neve talked about this when when we first started looking at kind of organised crime together. And I said, but, you know, if you look at East London, East London has this strong history of having these family family firms. And, you know, now you potentially could argue that they came from countries that had been colonised. Many of these families came from countries that have been colonised um, and that East London is, you know, this kind of, you know, cultural mix potentially. But I, it just makes me think I, I don't I don't really buy it. I think it, it boils down more to kind of economic inequality and you know you you can go back into these subcultures and maybe kind of particular families kind of merge into this kind of subculture there's there's something else there but i don't think it's colonialism particularly but then maybe if colonialism this is me waffling again maybe if colonialism feeds into a a wider culture where the family is really important which it is in ireland then that influences the structure of organized crime because organized crime in itself is often just, you know, a reflection of the wider culture. You know, it's still connected to what the wider national culture still connected to, you know, the wider economy. So I think there's an element there, but it's not the cause. I think there's, there's something going on. Lindsay, you're, we we spoke about this before about kind of you you not speaking on these types of um on these types of of panels and i i was slow when i started doing my early work on opium farming i was actually slow to engage with the organized crime literature because i didn't want opium farmers to be seen as organized criminals you know they're just normal people doing doing what they need to do um do you do you feel that way i do it's it's weird. I think I think Orla was kind of alluding to this as well whenever she's talking about how Irish academia, if it does talk about terrorism, talks about terrorism in the context of the Troubles and um, and how that's kind of shaded everything. So I think it's very much the case with me that there was a subject matter that I wanted to research and I wasn't sure what body of literature to go to for, if that made sense. Like what's theoretical lenses to apply to it so that I could make sense of it. Um, so with the smuggling literature, you know, I had been, I'd been like, is this, am I looking at transnational? Am I looking at organized crime literature? Am I looking at order uh, criminologies? I, so it was because it's not really a typical area of research in criminology. It's rural for a start, which is kind of coming through. Uh, but, you know, it's, older men from rural communities in border areas in Northern Ireland, that's not fitting into any of the big you know, research areas. So absolutely, I think organized crime is one of the literatures that I now kind of find myself looking at where I was kind of struggling for like a theoretical home for the stuff that I was trying to put together. The, um, the Journal of Illicit Economies, which is a, a kind of a newer online journal, they they deal with a lot of these issues um in in various countries and i think they're they're kind of guided and i think it is you know it, i i don't think it necessarily always sits within criminology i think you need to look at politics you need to look at you know uh, other areas and sometimes just kind of area studies um you know i think there's a there's a, like your work i do I, I i hear your work and i i think of southeast asia i think of what's going on in those border regions um you know, and again, just just farmers trying to trying to make good, like you know. 
There's the lack of the historicity, though, isn't there? Like, you know, you think of you think of the troubles as the past. Well, that happened a long time ago. That's done. That's dusted. But in fact, it overshadows every element of the criminal justice system in this country and across the border. You know, it's fundamentally different. Like the the process of dealing with terrorism in Northern Ireland is not even the same as in Great Britain. You know, um, everything is different. And it's like the unspoken truth right? <laughs> that um, and I think that's something we're missing. You know, it, it it integrates every element of how we do criminal justice, but it's the it's the unspoken, and and it's the it's the unanalyzed, right? And it's the same thing. The literature is not there on it, partially because daren't call it terrorism, um, partially because of the colonialism, partially because of you know the way we talk about state violence and collusion and the unresolved victim issues. So it's it's kind of it's it's the it's the elephant in the room almost, you know, for my work anyway. Yeah, your kind of comment that it was two tier and yet yeah. assumed, but not really discussed. Yeah, it's absolutely right. Yeah, it's complete. Yeah, it is. And I mean, it, it's kind of it's just dismissed as well in Europe when they talk about extremism. Oh, you guys in Ireland, you know, you know about that. But that was that was different. That's long ago. You know, like it like it's something fundamentally different. Like I think it was in the 70s. Paul Wilkinson talked about corrigible and incorrigible political violence. And what he really meant in a terribly conservative way was that you know, you could you could negotiate with the IRA, right? So, but it's it's this fundamental belief that that there's there's some kind of psychopathological element to ISIS and and extremism related to Islam, but not for the others. You know, there's really really problematic constructions around all of these things that aren't taken apart. You know, and you see the same with the far right. The same thing again. This kind of, um, you know, the emergence of extremism around the far right, but a conflation of ideas and behaviors. So, a conflation of conservative ideas with far-right extremism you know this so those those I think those same things are happening again it's the conflation of ideas and behavior and then this moralizing around those ideas you know I guess when we're talking about illicit economies Mm -hmm. there's also uh, a much wider piece about how they fit into the wider economic uh, patterns and models uh, that are that are being advanced you know, neoliberal economic policies, um, particularly in certain parts of the world, have had a, a hugely incentivizing effect on various illicit trades. Uh, and that's rarely brought out um, in certain strands of the literature. And similarly, around uh, corruption, whether that's elite level corruption uh, or whether it's at a more sort of practical working level to facilitate um, illicit commodities being moved through different different jurisdictions. The wider economic and indeed sort of political context within which that takes place is often uh, ignored, but it has a hugely, you know, can have a very powerful influence on the nature uh, of those illicit markets and how well they, and how to what extent they gain, they gain traction in certain jurisdictions. Um, there's a question in the chat from Kenneth Grant, which I definitely can't answer. Uh, how we, how well resourced are the government agencies? I, I guess you're asking Kenneth in in relation to the UK and 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 Ireland um, to cover the whole island. Uh, they're they're fairly well resourced in comparative terms uh, compared to other uh, other jurisdictions. What I would say though is that there's a huge disparity in the amount of uh, funding that's given, certainly within the UK, that's given to counter-terrorism uh, versus uh, combating organised crime. So counter-terrorism funding dwarfs 
direct funding to to deal with organized crime by by quite a serious um measure i haven't got the figures to hand um, but if you look at the budgets assigned to those respective areas counter-terrorism <laughs> wins by a fairly huge margin and of course there's huge european funding in northern ireland as well very limited budgets here for counter extremism in the form that they talk about it in the uk so i think there's a real there's a real disparity there um but what's really interesting is if you look at the figures on um political violence in ireland and in northern ireland there's no so so prevent channel you know all of those strands of counterterrorism in the uk they are all focused they originated from a focus on Islamic extremism. If you look at the instances of, of political violence on this island, it's all related to the troubles, all of it. Um, and so that's not talked about. It's not risk assessed in the stream in the same way. So when we have, you know, the fact that we have any focus on Islamic extremism, increasingly the far right as well, it it kind of it seems ridiculous when the figures point entirely to troubles related activity. Um, so that's 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 a different issue, and and there's all kinds of you know issues around Islamophobia and ex racism and anti-immigrant sentiment and all of those things linked to that. Um, but again, it's a hugely problematic area that doesn't get addressed. I think we have a really critical group of criminal justice professionals um, who are well versed in this, but that's very much the individuals as opposed to the systemic, and um, you know whether or not there be organisational learning going forward or whether that's reliant on the key individuals that are there at this moment in time is, is difficult to tell. So that's that's certainly an issue in the Irish context. I suppose one thing they're saying about like organised crime and requires a, a multidisciplinary approach. Um, Alexander, did you see that? Like I, I, I get a sense that Irish agencies work work very well with each other, you know, um, that there seems to be good communication and not just communication within the island of Ireland, but communication with with the UK as well and partners um, abroad. Yeah, I think cooperation um, from Ireland overseas has gone through a sort of step change. Uh, we've seen the deployment of, of international li Garda liaison officers to various locations overseas. Um, so there's been a quite a step change, sort of step up in terms of the Gardaí's response to transnational organised crime. I guess where I'd see a deficiency is in coming back to your original comments, James, is in the sort of lack of a of a, a grown up conversation around illicit, the illicit economy or illicit economies across this island within civil society and how that influences government policy. I think, you know, the government response is fairly sort of mature and, and, and effective as far as it can be. But I think it, it, it doesn't have the benefit of a huge amount of input from civil society, whether that's academia, uh, NGOs, uh, even the, the private sector. Um, and I think that sort of whole of society approach um, is one that really could do with some improvement uh, in, in this jurisdiction. I'm being told we, we need to wrap it up. So <laughs> we'll end on that. Everyone, thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the OC24 podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. This talk was just one of 85 from this year's 24-hour conference on global organised crime. To get access to the rest, head over to oc24.haysummit.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>